I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. This is the second of two episodes we recorded with Dr. Jack Watling of the Royal United Services Institute. If you haven't heard the first one yet, probably best to start there, where we talk about the situation on the ground in Ukraine. In this episode, we cover the strategic and international picture. I began by asking Jack what was the situation on both sides in terms of ammunition supplies and their ability to continue fighting this war. There's quite a few things there. One of them is about people. Uh, one of them is about munitions. Uh, and then we can talk about NATO. So for we'll start with the Russian munitions picture. Um, Russia probably has enough conventional unguided munitions, so dumb rounds, mm. to maintain its current rate of fire for about six years. Yeah. Uh, so there's no shortage of ammunition. And uh, they can keep moving those rounds to the front. As they break into older stocks, the reliability of some of those rounds will decrease. So you'll see more and more duds, um, which has a very significant risk after the conflict as well. Um, but nonetheless, the Russians have plenty of ammunition and they can manufacture more of that stuff. Where they have shortages, or not necessarily shortages at this point, but they have to balance is their precision weapons, which they have far fewer of, and which would be critical for their defense plans if they ever had a fight with NATO or anyone else. Mm. And so they don't want to burn through all of those. Um, they also are holding back quite a lot of their better quality precision munitions and therefore using some slightly bizarre old weapon systems for missions where they don't necessarily need the same level of accuracy. So, for example, using the KH-22 anti-ship missile to strike a shopping center. You know, shopping centers are big targets, hard to miss. Yes. Um, using a very strange munition for it, but it, it kind of makes sense um, if you accept the logic that you're trying to inflict terror. Yeah. Um, so the Russian position there is curtailed by the fact that not only do they have a limited supply of those munitions and they are slow to manufacture, but most of those complex weapon systems are also dependent upon Western components. And so the fact that they are full of American and British and Dutch and Japanese and so forth, microelectronics, means that the sanctions really limits their ability to continue as before in terms of production of those systems. So yeah. there's a replacement issue. Then you move to people. Um, the Russian military has suffered very heavy casualties. Um, and because they didn't fully mobilize, they are still on a peacetime footing in terms of personnel, um, which means that they are really struggling to form new units or to get critical mass. What they are able to do is through a process, firstly, of uh, very lucrative or very generous contracts um they are able to recruit off the street and they are also conscripting people who have prior military experience and they've raised the age at which they can pull people in uh starting in the east of the country moving to the west 
Uh, and I think they assess that there's about 1.6 million people that they think they can pull into the military, but it's constrained by their ability to equip them, their ability to train them. And so that basically means you have a steady feed of personnel into the Russian military who haven't worked together for a while, aren't trained on the new systems, their combat capability is is not fantastic, but they can certainly occupy ground and some of them have a reasonable amount of experience and so, you know, won't get themselves killed immediately. Um, and they can maintain force levels. So long as they have the artillery, it's sort of a model that works. For the Ukrainians, they have many, many people. You know, they've got, let's say, around 400,000 people in active service um, and then many more people who are serving in other capacities. Yeah, Those individuals are not all very well equipped. Um, you know, the Ukrainians don't have enough weapons or ammunition themselves to equip the whole force. And so they are dependent upon Western supply. And that's where you run into Western countries having, firstly, prioritized their own industri- their own companies and intellectual property over interoperability in NATO. And so mm. you have a lot of systems which actually, on paper, should be interoperable, but are not. Um, secondly, have only been making very small orders of lots of these systems for a long time, and so do not have the industrial capacity to make them at scale uh, without significant investment. And thirdly, have not been replacing stocks as they go out of life and have to be destroyed or expended. Yeah. And so 155 millimeter artillery ammunition, uh, which is the the mainstay of NATO's artillery, is scarce in NATO. uh, And there is only a limited period for which a consistent volume will be able to be given to Ukraine. Similarly with GMLRS, the munition uh, for HIMARS uh, in Western stockpiles. And there is a scarce supply Mm. and production takes time. And so that's a real challenge. Um, I should add on to that, that, you know, NATO is congratulating itself or lots of NATO members are congratulating themselves for helping to save Kiev at this point. Um, And there, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, we don't need to spend more on defense because Russia is going to be weaker after this. If I was watching this as China, thinking about Taiwan, I would be saying NATO lacks legs. And therefore, as the US starts to burn through its GMLRS stocks, for example, in Ukraine, their vulnerability in Southeast Asia increases. Yeah. And I think one of those those really important dynamics is to make people appreciate that if we don't transition to, in some ways, a war economy of our own in terms of, you know, really expanding the, the capacity to manufacture these things, it's not just Ukraine that at some point will run out of ammunition. It's also the credibility of our deterrence. Absolutely. So, you know, especially since when you look at the lead times on some of these weapons, um, if I were to order an, an NLAW, the anti-tank weapon that has been very effective in Ukraine, supplied by the UK, it would come off the production line probably in the second half of the 2020s. Right. Um, and I think what we've seen in Ukraine is how dangerous it is when the credibility of your deterrence fails. You've got that production capacity issue and you've also got the coming winter crisis in terms of the political crisis and if if, if what you're saying is that Russia's got its its sort of dumb artillery but it's still you know sufficient for certain types of jobs uh, they just need to grind out until perhaps early next year when the backbone will have deserted quite a lot of people who've had to live through a 
winter of crazy fuel prices and political chaos. Is there a a risk then that Russia just sort of decides to see us out? I mean, the, it's not a linear process, right? Uh, there are some really critical turning points. So the first one is in, in the next, let's say, three months, are NATO countries going to rationalize what we provide to Ukraine and agree that we step up production of certain critical materials? You know, that's something, that's a, that's a problem that we can fix. Yeah. But we don't have forever to make that decision because it takes time to set up the production lines and to get everything rolling. First thing, do we do our leaders show the leadership to make that call? Question one. Question two, uh, as you say, when Russia cuts off the gas supply to Germany and uh, the Germans are not able to heat their houses and they can't supplement heating with electricity because it's, it's literally gas heating in most of the homes. So it just means no heating. Um, and in addition, you see whole industries in Germany potentially having to lay people off or uh, put people on furlough because they literally don't have the fuel to supply that industry with energy. Hmm. Um, and then you potentially have recession in Europe, etc. <laughs> Plus high fuel prices for everyone else. Um, do we have the stomach to go through with it and yeah. to eat that, you know, just accept that cost? Actually, when you look at polling in Germany, a lot of the population at the moment say we're prepared to support Ukraine. And I think the population is actually more right than the German government on most of this stuff um, because Russia doesn't lose the ability to do that to us just because we suddenly start uh, playing nice, right? Yeah. And therefore, uh, it, it's a trap, but it, it's not a way out of the woods at all. It just fractures Western unity if you start folding over over activity like that. So this winter is going to be politically very difficult. And I think it's really important that our leaders, in the same way that the intelligence community were very good in December at coming out early and saying, this is what's going to happen. This is going to be hard. Yeah, um, We need to be shaping the public discussion so that people don't see this uh, as a failure of our governments and instead see it as hostile behavior by Russia, which is what it is. Yeah. Um, but if we're not preemptive and proactive in explaining to people what's about to happen, then the political backlash could be quite severe. And yes, that could really destabilize people's willingness to not just provide military support, which I think I think people instinctively get, right? Yeah. Keep you with, supplying you with ammunition so you can survive. But it's also providing all the financial support yeah. because Ukraine's going to have lost 49% of its GDP. Uh, there aren't jobs for the people going back. Uh, lots of its infrastructure is destroyed. And just running the Ukrainian government is going to cost the EU and the US a lot of money over the next few months. So with that in mind, you have to ask, so what what is the route out of this? Because it doesn't sound as though... Uh, the Ukrainians will be able to drive the Russians off their soil, uh, or do you? Do you uh, maybe I phrase that in a too negative way. Do you think that's still a possibility? I will answer that, but just briefly, I think there is a problem in NATO with different countries having different objectives, and there hasn't been a, a frank conversation to say what are we actually trying to achieve. Yeah, uh, partly because I think we want to retain alliance unity, and so mm. it's, it's in some ways advantageous if we don't have to be too precise about yeah. that point, and but. Strategic ambiguity has its own value. Has its own value, but but I think the the cost of that is that we are not prepared to make some of the big calls that need to be made. 
One of them is, do we want to enable the Ukrainians to conduct a major counterattack? If we do, we need to provide training at scale uh, and we will need to provide critical kinds of equipment at a relevant scale, which is going to be costly. If the Ukrainians do counterattack and seize a significant part of, of the terrain that they've lost, then it's a huge blow for the Russians. And if the Russians look at the equation and just see themselves being bled out, driven back, then at some point the question in Moscow is, how do I recover anything from this? Yeah. Right? If, if Putin believes he can just dig in, then his judgment and calculus won't shift. The question is whether we can shift it. Um, and so, you know, that that's, again, not linear, right? The, the position at the moment from Putin's point of view, I think, clearly, I don't, I don't have insight into his mind, but I think is very much like you say, we are on a consistent track in which uh, certain things favor Russia and therefore it's worth grinding on. If the situation deteriorates too much on the battlefield, uh, and I think we have the means to enable that, then that calculus looks quite different. If we are very clear with our publics and we have consistent polling coming out across our publics that say, not only do our publics feel that Russia is responsible for the pain they're feeling, but we are prepared to go through with this, then Moscow's judgment about the long-term trend might change. That's where we really need to start thinking about how we build leverage and shift the calculus in Moscow. Now, one of the ways um, perhaps in which uh, Western leaders can demonstrate to the public that that their plan is is not just about grinding on, hoping that something will get better, might be this question of the uh, exports of Ukrainian wheat. So some of those exports have begun, but the the access to the main port of Odessa still remains uh, something that is has not been achieved. Is that actually a bit of a red herring and and something that we shouldn't be too focused on, or is or is that a, is that a very important potential development? It's a really, really important issue. Um, firstly, for the Ukrainian economy. Secondly, because a another strand in Russia's efforts to transition to a war economy and sustain its effort is to break out from the sanctions by building a international coalition of states who don't want to be bossed around by the West, right? And the pitch that the Russians are making, bearing in mind that Putin signed in the last couple of years over 20, I think, defense cooperation agreements across Africa. They're currently operating in four African countries. Um, The pitch that he is making to a lot of the world is Europe is very happy to put sanctions on that lead to the death of people of a different skin color because they don't care about you, Mm. right? That's, That's the information narrative that the Russian services are pushing in a lot of languages all around the world. And the evidence is in in their narrative that food prices are going up because of sanctions. Now, in reality, food prices are going up because of the destruction of Ukrainian grain and because of uh, the blockade of Odessa. In addition, the Russians are stealing grain and then exporting it themselves and selling it both to make a profit, but also to say, and relationships with Russia will get you out of your problem. So you can see how they're, they're using this and weaponizing it. Yeah. Um, Now, if we are to counter that narrative, I think we need to be very proactive in demonstrating that, no, this is a Russian blockade. That's the cause. And that means reopening the port of Odessa. Um, There are lots of ways that you could go about doing that. But for me, um, one of the most promising is is a 
essentially pushing civilian shipping into the port. Um, it requires a certain amount of uh, preparation in terms of mines, but um, it's a kind of heads I win, tails you would lose position in the sense that if the Russians sink it, uh, it's very, very clear who's responsible for the grain not getting out. Right. Um, and I think what we need to also be cognizant of is is not getting too excited about Russian diplomacy. So, you know, there's this meeting going on today, I think, between Iran, Turkey and, and Russia Indeed. on whether some mechanism can be worked out. In In Syria, the Russians would come forward with this big kind of grandiose proposal to fix a problem that humanitarians cared about. They would then, in the small print, essentially create a deal or a mechanism that, that locked in their own interests and harmed their enemy. And then because they'd got the humanitarians to say it was a good thing in the first place, uh, it would then be something that was very difficult to attack politically. And so the Russians are very, very experienced at weaponizing humanitarian assistance and weaponizing uh, these sorts of, of issues. And I think we need to be much more proactive in going to the UN General Assembly and getting a vote that says, you know, we need to reopen the port of Odessa uh, on humanitarian grounds. A blockade's not acceptable, you know. Being much more forthright in shaping the conditions uh, rather than reacting to whatever time-wasting proposal the Russians have come up with that, that ultimately will have a nasty sting in the tail. Yeah, but that hasn't been happening. So is, is this simply about human factors, that there isn't enough clear leadership here in Western countries, or, or are there other reasons for this? Uh, you know, when, you, when you're in D.C. Um, and you give people a hard time, people kind of say, you know, well, I can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? And they absolutely can't. Right. Right? People, like, people like to say that in government. It's a lie. Uh, and if you look at the behavior of Western governments, all we could talk about was COVID. Then all we could talk, even though people were saying Afghanistan was about to go to pieces, yeah. then everyone could only talk about Afghanistan, even though Putin published his essay and lots of people were warning about Russia. Yeah. Uh, and then everyone ran over and started worrying about Russia. Um, but even in that context, the Foreign Office in, in London is much more consumed, I think, with Brexit uh, than it is with um, you know, Ukraine on a diplomatic level, right? British policy on Ukraine has been led from the Prime Minister's office and from uh, the Ministry of Defence, largely. Um, and when you look across capitals, there's a lot of people who are not proactively out there seeing what they can do to shift the calculus and are instead waiting for some grandiose centralized coordination function to sort of tell them what they should be doing. The problem with that is that when you have a small number of people in the center, there's only so many issues they can look at. Mm. And so this is a, a mechanism which has become very widespread, it's like typified by fusion doctrine in the UK, um, which is really good at dealing with a narrow focused crisis and absolutely terrible at dealing with uh, large-scale, complex problems where you need to get in front of the next problem rather than get sucked into trying to fix the problem that's right in front of you. And so, you know, I think there's a wider point, which is Western governments are not pr appropriately geared to deal with this kind of problem. They've become culturally used to dealing with counterterrorism and terrorism issues, which frankly are uh, simple and low risk in comparison. Hmm. And um, we need to really think about the architecture of national security if we are to be able to uh, distribute the permissions to civil servants uh, and, and officers across the force to 
be able to look for advantage and exploit it when they come across it, rather than everything coming back to so few people that, frankly, most things never get high enough up the sort of priority list to get looked at. Yeah. There's a lot of very good initiatives that people generate at the lower level, and it ends up in a stack somewhere, and there's just not enough people who are authorized to go through it uh, to ever get through all of those things. Yeah, and a decision is therefore never made on something that could have been a brilliant idea. Yeah. Well, until until it's too late to have done something about it, yes. because everyone suddenly realizes that it's a crisis rather than uh, a warning. Well, as, as a former Foreign Office official, this, this sounds grimly familiar. Um, Jack, uh, this has been a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation. Thank you very much for uh, joining us at Doomsday Watch and helping us understand the current state of the war in Ukraine. Pleasure. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.